Let's pray. Lord, we come before you now as we open your word, knowing that in it we have everything we need for life and godliness. And so we ask that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to hear the word that you have for us this morning, and that you would seal it in our hearts and help us to respond in faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So when my wife Jenna and I were in our first year of marriage, uh, we were both working full-time jobs and intent on taking a, a vacation together for, uh, you know, just to kind of do it before we had kids or to uh, get some time away together. And the thing is, is Jenna and I have vastly different ideas of what a relaxing vacation looks like. I don't know if maybe you all have, have run into that problem before. For me, my version of a relaxing vacation is going to a new city that we've never been to before, maybe trying new restaurants, exploring, um, lots of public transportation, walking around, and if you can think of the opposite of that, um, that is, would be like a beach vacation. That's Jenna's favorite thing to do. It's to have nothing on the schedule, to just have uh, you know, a week to where we can sit back and relax, enjoy each other's company, and and just kind of take it easy. Pretty different, right? Well, for this first vacation away together, kind of I, deep down and, and young and not very humble in my first year of marriage, was determined on, on kind of making it a great vacation for me. And so I planned this big East Coast trip. So we were going to fly into Baltimore, and we were going to take the train up to New York City, and we had all this list of restaurants that we were going to explore and go to, and I had everything planned down to the 15-minute interval. We had a little schedule. If, if I was really good, I would have had it laminated. And, and that was kind of the rule. There were no options. We kept to the schedule. Um, my family, they, they know this. I've done this before and, and kind of embarrassingly held to the schedule we have. The only problem with this approach for this week, um, other than it was all what I wanted to do and nothing of what Jenna wanted to do, was that Jenna was also six months pregnant at the time. And so you can imagine how ideal that was for her of being six months pregnant and having four straight days of walking over five miles a day to and from all our different um, destinations. I didn't have nap time built into the schedule. Well, our different appro approaches to this vacation, I think kind of highlighted a best case example and a worst case example for how to pursue decision making and pursue unity. Hers was, embarrassingly to me, the, the correct way of doing that, which is she kind of selflessly agreed to go along with my repeated urgings to, uh, to go on this um, sightseeing trip, while me, I was kind of selfishly pushing my own plan um, with, with all these like, great phrases like, you know, we're never going to get this chance again to do this trip without our kids, or, or um, you know, we'll appreciate this trip a lot more in the future than we will a beach trip. Um, but you know, we ended up surviving that trip together, and, and I've since learned that forcing my own way really isn't the best way to build a great united marriage, so that's been a good learning since then. Um, but I think kind of this situation is, is an example of the type of routine problems that we run into in our lives. We all live closely with a, with a number of people, whether that's in our work, in our families, in our, in our church, and, and people, we, you know, we kind of tend to have our own interests. We're, 
we're stubborn, and we have competing versions of what we think is the best way forward. So what do we do when we have these competing interests? When we push for our, when we, do we push for our own way? What does that end up resulting in if we just pushed for our own way you know, for, for a long time? I know in my marriage, I've been able to since wise up and our vacations look a little bit different now than they did that, that first time. Um, we at least have some options built into the schedule now instead of just my only option. But how do we practically preserve and pursue unity in the face of these competing, kind of this natural tendency, our fleshly tendency to have competing interests? So that's what we're going to address this morning in Philippians. Our text this morning is Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. And in, in these verses, Paul's writing to the Philippians, and I think by extension he's writing to us, the Holy Spirit speaking to us through Paul here, telling us that unity isn't achieved by, by just one person picking their way to do things and the other person being forced to go along. It's not kind of grudgingly just agreeing to do something you don't want to do. It's, it's real heart-based change that happens that comes about from having a common desire, common goals, and a common mind. This is what Paul wants the Philippian church and what he wants each of us for our church, for our relationships, for our homes to model. And so we now have this daily choice to either pursue this type of unity or to pursue our own interests. Now, before we kind of dive into our verses um, this morning, I'd just like to quickly recap the kind of the status of the Philippian church, because um, I think it's important for us as we look at these, this text this morning. You may recall from looking at this book in the past that Paul's writing from prison. Um, he's awaiting news on what could be a pending execution, and yet he's writing this hopeful, joyful letter filled with encouragement on his remembrance of the Philippian church. A few examples of this, if you're looking at, at Philippians 2, you can look back to chapter 1, see in verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. In verse 4, he says he's making all of his prayers for them with joy. In verse 8, he says he yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, if we heard a pastor speaking of a church this way, or if someone talking about Kenwood Baptist Church in this way, what would our assumption be? It'd probably be that this is a healthy church. I think that's what Paul really has in mind. This letter really isn't primarily about addressing a major theological error that's happening or some kind of gross, um, immoral behavior. He did that with the, Philippi, with the Corinthian church, for example, but we don't see that here. They seem to be getting a lot of these things right. He mentions that they were partners in the gospel and that they are growing in the gospel. So this letter of encouragement and commendation in this letter, I think it's important for us to see that Paul makes this kind of pit stop at the end of chapter 1 and in these first four verses of chapter 2 to address a, a real um, issue that he sees that could be lurking in the weeds, um, one of Satan's primary methods for wreaking havoc in Christ's church wreaking havoc in a healthy Philippian church. It's disunity. Now, at first glance, this would seem to be a strange point of emphasis. I mean, if you have a church that's doctrinally sound, where the people love, um, are they committed to ministry and they love the Lord, wouldn't that be a place where you wouldn't think disunity would be a problem or something worth you know, needing to write about? But as John MacArthur commented when thinking about this type of church, this healthy type of church, he, he wrote, there is a sense in which this is the danger of every healthy church. You see it as when people are really in earnest, when their beliefs really matter to them, when they are eager to carry out their own plans and their own schemes, 
that they are most apt to get up against each other. The greater their enthusiasm, the greater the danger that they may collide, end quote. So as we look at Philippians this morning, let our context be that Paul could very easily be writing this warning about disunity to Kenwood, a doctrinally sound church, people committed to, to ministry, people who sincerely love the Lord. We see all these characteristics, and I see these in each of you. But our risk could be that our passion for these things could turn into our own agendas and lead to disunity, disunity that takes our eyes off of our shared common purpose as the people of God. So today, as we look at Philippians 2, 1 through 4, we're going to have three points as we examine our call to unity, three, three main things we're going to learn. First, in verse 1, we're going to see why we should strive for spiritual unity. In verse 2, we're going to see what spiritual unity is. And in verses 3 through 4, how we put spiritual unity into practice. So why, what, and how in verses 1 through 4. So let's look at our text this morning. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The first thing to point out about this text is that when Paul is asking if, so he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any uh, participation in the Spirit, if there's any affection and sympathy, he's not questioning if these things are true. We know that there is encouragement in Christ, that there's comfort from love, participation in the Spirit. He's making a rhetorical point to each of the hearers of his message. We could read this in plain English, kind of like this. We could say, therefore, because there is encouragement in Christ, because there is comfort from love, because there is participation in the Spirit, because there is affection and sympathy. So I think Paul's very quickly laying the groundwork for why we pursue spiritual unity. It's because of all these things that, we, that are true, these, these gifts. But I think the important thing for us this morning is not just that we see these things as, as, as mere attributes of, of God, but they are personal benefits we've received from God. Each of us, if we are in Christ, have experienced encouragement from him. We've experienced his help, the benefits from his sacrifice, how he as a shepherd sought us and rescued us when we were helplessly lost. That's, that is a benefit we've received. Not only that, we've received comfort from God's love. We've experienced that. We have peace with God, knowing that we do not have to face the wrath that we rightfully deserve because of his plan to rescue us through the death and resurrection of his son. Not only that, we have participation in the Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, convicting us of sin, shaping us more and more into the image of Christ, helping us to deny ungodliness and pursue righteousness. And then finally, we have affection and sympathy. Through the work of God, we are new creatures with new hearts, having affections and sympathy, having feelings and emotions that we just wouldn't otherwise have, absent the Lord's miraculous work of new life that we experience each and every day as we desire to do good things. So we have all these blessings, 
And in them, Paul is giving us our motive for spiritual unity. Why? The why of spiritual unity. It's because of these blessings we've received that we should pursue unity. Now, you may have picked up on this in kind of the way that Paul describes this why. Um, there's this emphasis, I think, that's evident here on the Trinity. There's this encouragement in Christ. There's comfort from love, from God's love. There's participation in the Spirit. And I think that Paul's emphasis here on, on this Trinitarian motivation should cause us to specifically pursue unity. You know, we could make a case that those benefits could be a reason for us to pursue all different sorts of things like loving your neighbor or not stealing. But I think he specifically is, has unity in mind. And I think that's why he uses this Trinitarian motivation because of what the Godhead is. It is perfect unity. There's no disunity in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. This unity, I think, we see drawn out and, and described in Jesus' prayer in John 17, where he prays, Father, I pray that they may be one, even as we are one. So one of Jesus' top priorities was that his church's unity would mirror the unity that he has with the Father and the Spirit. So I think we can rightfully see these spiritual benefits, the encouragement, the love, the fellowship, the new hearts that we receive from our Trinitarian God as motivations specifically for spiritual unity. And then we can paraphrase this whole verse now and, and say, and hear Paul saying, look, Philippians, you've received new life in Jesus. Kenwood, you have felt God's love. You have the Holy Spirit working inside of you, making you into a new creation. Given that you've received all of these gifts, wouldn't the least you could do to be, in a live, to be to live in a way that Christ prayed, to be of one mind? Isn't that a reasonable request? Now, we are prone to lose sight of this. Um, prone, I know I'm prone to get my feelings hurt, to forget all that I've been saved from and saved to. And when we lose sight of the blessings we've received, we naturally turn self-focused, disagreeable, envious, competitive, critical, jealous. I think of how at Christmas this year with our two oldest boys, um, they would so easily lose sight of the gifts that they received for Christmas. I mean, they have this pile of gifts that they received, and yet they very quickly lose sight of it, forget what they've received, and start focusing on what someone else has received. And next thing you know, the, the whole, everything goes sideways. You know, our kids are are fighting with each other. It's, it's, like, it's almost like it's hardwired, this attitude into our sinful flesh to be selfish and to forget what we've been given. This is what was lurking at Philippi. This is what Paul is addressing. I think he's proactively addressing it here in chapter 2 because I think he has a situation in mind that he expounds on further in chapter 4, the first several verses when he talks about Euodia and Syneche. There are these two women who were um, not agreeing in the Lord but had previously labored side by side in the gospel. Paul's appealing to them, and I think this morning he's appealing to any of us with outstanding differences, frustrations, disappointments, hurt feelings, to reflect on the gifts that have been received in Christ that we've all received personally, and to respond then in selflessness. He's imploring them, he's imploring us as one who loves them, one who loves us, to see real heart change. Will you do that this morning? Will you recognize the gifts that you've received from the Father 
Hear the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ that we be one as he is one with the Father and the Spirit and respond in obedience. That's our call this morning that we are we're called to. Now, Paul actually gives us one additional motivator. He kind of throws this in. Um, one additional motivator for spiritual unity. One more why. He says that the Philippians should pursue spiritual unity to complete my joy. They should be motivated to do it for his sake. Or in our case, we could say, do it for your pastor's sake. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, the author of Hebrews, I think he's saying, on the one sense, yes, your pastors have a responsibility for you, and they need to do this with joy. They need to find a way to do it with joy. I think there's kind of a converse going on here as well, where he's saying, but you also, congregation, have a responsibility to make it so they don't dread the responsibility. Unity, unity of the church makes the responsibility light. Paul's joy is tied to the unity of this church congregation in Philippi. And so, our pastor's joy, I think, is tied to the unity of our church. We desire nothing more than to see our joy completed in watching each of you loving each other with brotherly affection, delivering meals to families with new babies, considering others above yourselves, serving sacrificially. I think it's why one of the most joyful times of the year for me is, uh, is when we come and drop off our children for parents' night out and seeing all of the college students who are just working in, you know, working their tails off, trying to wrangle, there might be five dozen kids who come for parents' night out, and it's these college students who take their Friday night and give it up so that parents can get away um, from their kids for a night for a date. These are unity-building activities, and they complete, they complete the pastor's joy when we see that being lived out. So let's remember that our striving for unity is we do it because of the blessing we've received, but also we do it for the blessing of our pastors. We make their joy complete. So that's the why we should pursue spiritual unity. And now let's look at verse 2 for the what spiritual unity looks like. I think we're given four descriptors in verse 2. He says, Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and again, this phrase, being of one mind, which in the New Living Translation, we see uh, translated as being intent on one purpose. So we'll try to just expand on these quickly and come up with a definition for spiritual unity, what it is. So we saw why, here's the what. First, um, Paul says to be of one mind. I think Paul's directing our understanding of unity as having to do, first of all, with our minds. Now, this isn't a new concept. Scripture repeatedly teaches us that it's critical on what our minds are set on. For example, Paul in Romans 8 says that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, but the mind that is set on the spirit is life and peace. Paul gives us a further explanation of kind of what he's getting at here, I think, in verse 5, when he writes that this mind that we're to have, this same mind, is the mind that we're to have among ourselves. It's ours in Christ Jesus. Thus, this unified same mind is, is it's the same because it's directed towards Jesus. It's set on him, it's received through him, and it's modeled after him, after his mindset of humility and how he condescended to us. So being of the same mind allows us to understand unity 
as having a mindset that is Christ-like. Yes, it's thinking the same things by being on the same page doctrinally. That's why we have a, uh, that's why we have a statement of faith that we recite together. But it's also having th- those same thinkings in the right way, in humility. Now, second, Paul says that we're to have the same love. He uses the term here for a willful love, not, not the attractive love or the pr- a preferential love. Unity means that we can and that we should um, will ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit to show non-preferential love to each other. Paul in Romans 12 exhorts the church there at Rome, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. So unity building love then is the love that loves like Jesus. It seeks out those who are in need. So we could summarize kind of our definition so far. We're building up this working definition that spiritual unity is characterized by a selfless love that flows out of a Christ-like, humble mindset. That's what spiritual unity looks like. Third, Paul says we're to be in full accord. Now the word Paul uses for accord here could be translated as one sold, S-O-U-L-E-D, one sold, and is referencing our desires, that we are to be fully united in our desires. Now isn't that the truth? If we have a vision for Christ's work that's birthed out of our own selfish desires, uh, that's where or is that odds with someone else's desires? Isn't that where conflict's going to begin? Where selfish ambition and defensiveness and competitiveness will begin? But if we cultivate desires that are in accord with each other, we'll naturally kind of move in the same direction. It makes me think of this kind of classic marriage counseling example where there's like the triangle. I don't know if you all have seen this before. And like the husband and the wife are kind of at the bottom and Christ is at the top. And the idea is, is as as the husband and wife focus on, on Christ and they move up the triangle, they grow closer to Christ, but they also grow closer to each other. I think this is practically how becoming one-souled, being in full accord, how it happens. We, we focus on Christ, and it naturally brings us closer to each other as we're sanctified and changed into his likeness. So now our, our, kind of our definition of spiritual unity, we can see it as selfless love, that flows out of a Christ-like, humble mindset focused on pursuing common desires. And finally, fourth, Paul says, and the New Living Translation translates here, be intent on one purpose. You could translate literally here as thinking the one thing. So it's slightly different than earlier where it says have the same mind, you have the same thinking. Here it's kind of more honed in, you could say. Think the one thing. I think he wants us, as we focus on having this same mind, that we have the same mind focused on the same purpose. And what is that purpose? It's advancing God's kingdom. It's the call that we've been given in Matthew 28 to make disciples of all nations. So I think our risk can be that we very quickly turn to advancing our own agenda, our own purpose, and get our eyes off of the one purpose we have. Our risk is transferring our our external focus purpose that's supposed to be outreaching to advancing the kingdom to an internal focused purpose, advancing our own feelings and priorities and agendas. It reminds me of, if there's any football fans in the room, um, of a recent NFL game this year between the uh, Green Bay Packers and the St. Louis Rams. And you may recall the ending of this game. The, the Packers were set to receive 
the, um, the kickoff with just a few seconds left, and they were down by, by a score. And so they were going to attempt this game-winning drive with only seconds remaining. And the coach tells the kickoff returner, I don't want you to try to do anything fancy. I just want you to catch the ball, let our all-pro quarterback come out and win the game for us. He wanted, he wanted, he, he knew better than anyone that their common purpose of winning the game was better served by having the quarterback go for, for, the, for the win than having this kickoff returner. But you can imagine um, why I'm telling the story, maybe what happened. Um, the kickoff returner decided he knew better than the, than the purpose of the coach and tried to win the game on his own. He caught the kickoff and tried to make a last second highlight reel run. And what happened? He fumbled the ball on his return, blowing the team's chance at victory because he took his, his eyes off the team's singular goal and put them on his own purpose of making his own highlight reel, of, of getting a highlight for, for his next contract negotiation. This is why we need to continually remind ourselves of our one purpose. It's why we recite our church covenant together regularly so that we will be reminded not to be the rogue kickoff returner. We are stronger when we stick together for our common purpose, Kenwood. So if we take all of this together now, we can finalize our definition of spiritual unity. It's selfless love that flows out of a Christ-like humble mindset that's focused on pursuing this one common desire, advancing God's kingdom. So we've seen the why, why we pursue spiritual unity. It's in response to all the blessings we've received in Christ. We've seen the what, what spiritual unity is. And now we'll see our third point, um, how we pursue spiritual unity. Let's look at verses three and four. First, Paul tells us, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So Paul exhorts us, this is, this is a significant you know, phrase here, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. We aren't to try to outdo one another, to view ourselves in competition with each other, to put ourselves forward, to try to be noticed, to put ourselves first. Once again, he says nothing. This is a dramatic phrase that we would be wise to think on. Paul's saying that all of those things, competitiveness, outdoing each other, putting ourselves forward, they cause strife, and that even the very smallest amount, anything more than nothing, will work to destroy our unity. This means that we need to examine ourselves. Um, how we, you know, for example, how we engage in social media. That's a place where it's very easy to want to put ourselves kind of one level above the next person. Um, how we, how we discuss theology among each other, how we serve in the church, how we interact with each other. All of these are areas where we can be prone to advance our own interests, to do things from selfish ambition, and do them for our own conceit, for our own glory. Last month, the Wall Street Journal, they had a obituary for Joachim Ronberg. He was a Norwegian a special forces soldier who passed away at the age of 96. Now, you may have seen his story. He was the last living survivor of a uh, Norwegian mission during World War II to destroy this hydroelectric plant in Vimork, Norway. Now, this plant was supplying nuclear material for the budding uh, Nazi nuclear program, and the Allies and the Axis powers, they were in this race for nuclear supremacy. So it was... Um, destroying this plant was critical for the, um, 
allies staying ahead of the Nazis. Vomork, where this plant was located, was situated on a high cliff in the middle of the frozen Norwegian tundra. And the mission that they were going to undertake, he and his group of fellow Norwegians, was going to require them being airdropped into the tundra and then living and camping outdoors in kind of frigid weather for months until the, until the right time came for the, for the raid. This team of, now, of nine Norwegians, they parachuted into Vomork in October, and they waited outside until February to complete their raid. And they ultimately infiltrated the facility, they destroyed this nuclear material, and they did it all without a single shot being fired. It was like this miracle story. And Neil Bascom, he's the author of the retelling of this kind of account, it's his book, The Winter Fortress, he recounted why these soldiers would spend months camping in underground snow forts. Um, they would, all they had to eat was moss and melted snow. Um, they suffered frostbite and disease, and they were constantly being chased by the Nazis. And he stated why they would go through all of this. He said, during preparations in England for the raid, the saboteurs had been promised a place in history by the mastermind of the operation, Leif Tronstad. But none of the men were there for history. If you went to the heart of the question, if you talked to them, to a man, none of them were there for fame, for nuclear materials. They'd seen their country's rights curtailed. They were there for Norway, for the freedom of its lands and the people from Nazi rule. They had a mission that didn't leave room for personal ambition, for selfish ambition. And we have a mission before us that doesn't have room for selfish ambition. Jesus tells us the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And to accomplish our mission, unity is required. To accomplish this task the Lord's put before us, to survive and succeed. And so we need to put aside any personal ambition, any hopes for our own place in history, and we just need to play our role, no matter how small or large it is, in the field where the Lord's planted us. That's, I think, what it means to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Next, Paul says that we are to pursue spiritual unity by, in humility, counting others more significant than ourselves. Now, this, I think, is a pretty practical one. Um, spiritual unity, unity in general... It requires humility, um, but we do well to ask ourselves, what is this humility that Paul references? I think it's the type of humility that C.S. Lewis describes in the Screwtape Letters when he says, humility is not a pretty woman trying to believe she is ugly and a clever man trying to believe he's a fool. True humility is when one could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in the fact without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it than he would be as if it had been done by another. To be so free from any bias in one's own favor that he can rejoice in his own talents as frankly and gratefully as his neighbor's talents. So our aim in humility is to have an accurate opinion and assessment of ourselves. And then once we have that, to, to consider others as more significant. I think Paul gives us a perfect example of this in scripture. He describes himself, he describes his sinful flesh. He says he's the, the chief of sinners, the least of the apostles. So he understands um, his, the nature of his flesh, of, of who he has the best view of 
whose heart he has the best view of. It's, it's, it's his own. We can relate to that. But yet he also talks about how he, he boldly professes his status as an apostle and the authority that this gives him. So he understands his place properly. But then in Philippians 1, he says ultimately that whether people are preaching in rivalry or goodwill, he talks about people who are kind of competing with him in their preaching, he ultimately says, whether, whatever, 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 whatever happens, as long as Christ is proclaimed, in that I rejoice. And that is humility, proper understanding of weakness, of strength, and then considering others greater than yourself. I'll admit, I am not very good at this. Um, maybe you aren't either. Um, I know personally, I'm usually pretty happy at, for other people if they um, get something that I already have. Um, but when it's something that I want, or maybe it's something that, um, that, I, that I wish I could have, I tend to not always be able to be as excited. I start getting competitive, kind of thinking, well, how could I take what I have and make it better than, than that? Um, my competitive side wants to kind of just go on this game of one-upsmanship. But getting, getting this right, um, in humility, counting others more significant than ourselves, is, is how we pursue unity. It's how it develops here in our church. It's how it develops in our homes. It's the example that we, the examples we read about in our scripture readings today of Jesus. He knew his place. Peter knew his, his, his standing. He ultimately said, Lord, don't wash my feet. You can't be doing this. But Jesus, knowing his status, who he was, still condescended and washed his feet. Likewise, Ruth, she knew that she needed someone to support her. That was the name of the game in, in those times of how you receive support. Yet she chose to stay with Naomi even when it wasn't in her best interest. She ultimately, in humility, counted her mother-in-law as more significant than herself. Now third, so we know that how we pursue unity, we do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, we count others, and humility is more significant than ourselves. Third, we, we look not only to our own interests. This is another practical um, how-to. It's fighting against self-absorption. Paul's saying, don't get so consumed with yourself that you can't see the needs of others around you. Now, you may be saying, it's, it's what I find myself saying a lot of times, we have four young kids, uh, seven, four, two, and, and seven months, you may find yourself saying, I can barely keep up with my own interests. How am, I supposed to, how am I supposed to do this? But nevertheless, this is the command from Scripture that we, we find a way to look out both for our own interests and also to the interests of others, all while counting them as more significant. So, so lastly, fourth, we're to look also to the interests of others, we're told in verse 3. Once you've taken your eyes off your circumstances and needs enough to see the needs of others, we're, we're supposed to actually act on those needs that we see. Because I think if we're being honest, and you, you all probably have, have experienced this, if you, if you really you know, boil it down, we have the time that we need to look out for others' interests as well as our own. We just have a hard time deeming others' needs as significant enough to actually act on them. But if, if you also look back and think of the times when we, you have gotten this right, think of, think of maybe a time when you visited someone in a nursing home or, or, or 
help someone move as they're moving out of one apartment to another. We have that happen a lot here at Kenwood. Um, doesn't it help to grow unity in your heart, help grow love for your fellow brothers and sisters when we're able to, to look at someone else's needs above our own? It definitely, I think, makes the person on the other end, the receiving end of the, of the gift, feel, feel that much more eager to reciprocate the blessing of someone else, and it starts this chain reaction of, of unity building. So those are the, the what, the why, and the how of spiritual unity. Um, and so lastly, I'd like to close with what I think are three points of application for us this morning. Um, first point of application, we need to recognize any attitudes in our hearts towards disunity. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition. So I think even our tendencies towards disunity, our tendencies to have selfish desires, unloving attitudes, competitive hearts that are unable to rejoice with others, what what I need to do, what I ask you all to do, is to see those for what they are. They're ultimately selfishness that is comfortable taking the spiritual blessings we receive in Christ, the comfort, the encouragement, the participation in the Spirit, and not responding in obedience to Christ's respected, requested unity. Maybe it'd be something, talking with a close friend would help, would help you kind of diagnose this. Um, so recognition is application number one. Number two is, is to engage in practical, personal, unifying activities. So we're each personally responsible for maintaining a culture of unity. It's not something that the elders can just make happen. It's not something that if you just wait for that other person who's maybe you know, tough to get along with, that they'll make happen. We each have the responsibility to maintain this culture of unity by doing nothing from selfish ambition, counting others more significant than ourselves, looking out not only for our own interests, but also the interests of others. Unity starts with each of us. It doesn't start by waiting for the other people to do it first. So how do we do this practically? I think one easy way is to be an engaged member in the church. Um, if, if, if I had a wish, it would be that 2019 was the year for each of us where we spent time, once we get this print directory and everyone gets a copy of that, that you spend time working through it and praying for the people in the directory and learning the names of everyone in our church. It's, maybe it's having a family in your home that you haven't had in your home before. They've been long, you know, longtime members of the church and you've just never had a chance to have them into your home. Could 2019 be the year that we do that? Or maybe you and your family or yourself could coordinate a trip to one of the nursing homes and visit one of our shut-in members. Coordinate that with Matt D'Amico. These are all practical, personal, unifying activities that I think will help grow each of our hearts for unity and start building a culture and reinforcing a culture of unity in our church. And third, um, third point of application is to have the same mind. We're told twice to have the same mind and to do that, I think we would be wise to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, he links the word of Christ, the scriptures, and, and unifying attitudes closely together. So I just ask that you hear Colossians 3, 12 to 16 this morning. We're told, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, 
bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we can practically pursue spiritual unity. We can apply these verses by letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. When we read God's word, meditate on it, memorize it, listen to it, sing it, we let it dwell in us richly. And that's how ultimately we transform our desires from self-centered desires, that's where they want, to, they want to bubble up in self-centeredness, that's how we transform them into desires that are focused on serving others and humbly considering ourselves. So this morning, I'd challenge you to a, a goal for 2019, and that'd be to memorize Philippians 2, 1 through 4. They're four very easy verses, and, and as you memorize these, to run them through your mind when you have things that you don't want to do, when you're, when you're tempted towards selfishness. So for me, this is when I do the dishes. Um, I'm married into a family where my brother-in-law, his, uh, his gift to his family is he does the dishes, and that was what his, his father did for their family. And so when I, when I married Jenna, one of her things was, hey, my brother-in-law does the dishes for their family. This would be a good idea for you. And I'd never done a dish in my life, embarrassingly, before, before getting married. I lived my one year of being out of college, and, and before getting married, I just used paper plates. Um, so, so I wasn't used to um, this concept. And for the first couple years of our marriage, it was like this little cold war where the dishes would just sit in the sink, and it'd be this who's going to do them kind of question. Um, I ultimately kind of got over this by choosing to take these verses and run them through my mind and help change my desires from self-centeredness. I think the Lord worked through them to reform my desires to where this was now an opportunity to serve Jenna, to serve our family. So this, it may not be the dishes for you. It may be a frustrating family member that you, that you don't want to see or that it's tough to communicate with. It may be giving up your free day at home to, to go help someone you know, move or, or do a home project. It may be something as simple as sticking, sticking around for fellowship lunch after at our church. You know, when, when everything in us wants to just kind of move on and go because we have our own interests to tend to. And so if you do this and, and you start, you memorize these verses and start seeing your desires change, I'd challenge you then to move on to verses 5 through 11 and learn and memorize Jesus' example in humility. And then all of chapter 2, and then the book of Philippians, it's just a great place to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And maybe memory verses aren't your thing. If they're not, we have another option here at Kenwood this year. Um, Denny mentioned it earlier. It's our Bible reading group that we're putting together that's committing to read through the Bible in 2019. This is another way to, through spiritual discipline, to to shape and form our desires to be in line with the desires of Christ. Desires for this common purpose. So application number three is to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 
So as we pursue spiritual unity, as we pursue it because of the blessings we've received in Christ, as we, as we pursue this unity that's marked by a selfless humility that's focused on shared desires for the purpose of advancing God's kingdom, we do it by doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility counting others more significant than ourselves, by looking not to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. So that's our call to Kenwood Baptist Church this morning. And for those who, who are not part of God's family, who, who you haven't experienced this encouragement in Christ, this comfort from God's love, this fellowship that comes through the Spirit, this new family, I ask you to hear this call to you this morning. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you'll turn from your sin and by faith confess your dependence on our Savior, Jesus Christ, you will be saved and you will be able to experience these blessings from God. You don't need me to tell you that the world outside of these walls is full of selfish ambition. It's a world that's just geared around getting one up over the next person. Everyone's out for themselves. But in here, in God's family, you can experience the safety and comfort of God's love as we strive together for this selfless love, this Christ-like humility. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would make us a church like the Philippians that bring joy and that are marked by our love for each other. And I pray you will not let us grow comfortable in our achievements and in our knowledge, but that you will continue to refine us, continue to grow us in sanctification, and continue to grow us in unity. Lord, we, we pray for those who may be hearing this message and who don't know of this of these blessings that come through you these this love and encouragement and fellowship and we pray you would draw them to you and lord that you would grow our number through through many coming to know the love of your son Jesus and we ask this in in his powerful name amen